you would turn to Exodus 20, that's where we will be this evening. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. We're going to continue with our study as we're going through the Ten Commandments, especially tonight, that second command. We'll be looking at that again. Last week we also considered it in the first place. Tonight is going to be very practical. Um, I'm going to be asking questions um, regarding this command and what this implies for us, the effects of it for us, and how we ought to worship because of it. Um, I'll read and then we'll pray. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That text is also found in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us and, and sharpen our understanding of how we ought to worship you. Um, these are primary things for us. These concern the ways that you have define true worship, and that's what we desire to do as your people, is to worship you, and to worship you properly, the way that you have commanded us to worship you, because in so doing, we demonstrate our love for you, Lord, and I pray that you would teach us, give us biblical consciences in these matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 40, verse 18, the prophet asks the rhetorical question, to whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? I said last week that, that that question really gets at the essence of this command, this second command. To whom is God comparable? And the answer, especially there in Isaiah, and the answer is no one. And we looked at two uh, aspects of the command last week, two aspects that we are forbidden in the context of this command to... Um, use in worship. The first was nothing made shall be worshipped and nothing shall be made in order to worship it. That is the idol that we cast with our hands or whatever, whatever it might be that we create with our hands. The text says in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now that's a way of describing everything. That, that's all there is in these, in these times. It's what they knew about. They didn't know about molecular biology and subatomic particles and those types of things. Had they known, it would have been here in the command. This is an experiential reality that anything that we create is not suitable for worshiping God. And secondly, the command forbids creating anything that represents the true God, that supposedly represents the true God. And this was the sin of Jeroboam. This is also the sin of Aaron as they came off the mountain and the people had him made that, make that bowl and, and he said tomorrow we'll celebrate, we'll, we'll sacrifice to the Lord, to Yahweh there. Nothing can be set up as it were to worship God through that medium. And today really we'll be looking at what that means for us when we think about worship. How does this practically affect us. And since I made it a point 
last week to consider the immediate context of the nation of Israel, that they were coming out of Egypt, a land of idolaters, idolaters, and going into Canaan, also a land of idolatry. I think it's important, again, to address that immediate context today by this first question. Does this command mean or restrict any use of artistry within the sacred uh, place of worship? Things carved or drawn, artistic mediums in themselves, woodcuts, you might think, in times gone past, photographs. Today we might think of graphic design artistry or modern elements to beautify a, a place of worship. And I would answer to that, it doesn't. It doesn't forbid these things. And I would take the tabernacle as one example, and I would take the temple as another. Within the tabernacle, which God defined its parameters and its design elements, he, when he designed the Ark of the Covenant, when he gave the parameters of how that was supposed to be made, above or on the mercy seat of that, on the lid, if you would, were two cherubims, angels, that were to be crafted. The golden lampstands in Exodus 25, 31 through 40, were components, were made to resemble almond blossoms and branches, natural things, things that appeared in nature. And the tabernacle curtains, as far as I know, all of them contained embroidered cherubim, which it says, quote-unquote, skillfully worked into them. So there were images, there were skillfully crafted items within the tabernacle that God ordained to be there that evidently weren't a transgression of this particular law. And neither do they contradict anything that was said last week as we understand this law. And the temple is no exception. That's found in 1 Kings and a few other places in the Old Testament. The cedar walls of the inner and outer rooms were carved, were for, uh, forms of gourds and open flowers all over them. And then that was in, encased in gold within the inner and outer rooms of the temple. And in verse 29 of, of 1 Kings 6, it says that cherubim and palm trees were also engraved in the walls. And then within the oracle in 1 Kings 6, 23, 215, now imagine this, I didn't gather this until I was studying this, 215 foot approximately, if you're counting the cubits, 215 foot tall cherubim were put in what we would call the most holy place. And it was supposed to loom over the Ark of the Covenant. They were, both of them were. 215 tall cherubim. And et cetera, et cetera. If you want to look at how that was placed with the Ark of the Covenant, you can see that in 1 Kings chapter 8. The second command makes any and all works of our hands unfit for worship. And to worship God through them as mediums. And this doesn't mean, though, that there is no place for artistry, I believe, even within the meeting places of worship. Now, there's two dangers that can come from this. On one hand, if we're not careful, we might feel that we are quite free to include visual aids as mediums for worship. Now, that's a difference if, if you're paying attention. 
there's a very great difference of something that adds to the beautifying element of a room and something that we say worship God through this thing. There's a big difference. And this is where especially Rome, Roman Catholicism, has gone quite off track. Since their Council of Trent in 1566, and you're going to have to remember this for the test afterwards, Rome has affirmed what they call the veneration of the saints and of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And they talk about veneration, which is a way of showing reverence in two ways, dulia and hyperdulia, which is where we get the words of service, service being rendered to these forms and to these special uh, saints and especially to Mary. Hyperdulia just means an extreme respect and honor needs to be shown to Mary, more so than even the saints within Rome. One of the reasons that worship or, or this type of distinction within Rome cannot be rightly practiced, according to the second command, is that veneration is a technical term they've made out of thin air. But what they mean by veneration is that they allow for their congregants to come before an idol that is made by human hands and bow, genuflect is the word that they use, to get on their knees and pray and seek affirmation from the saint through this medium, through this idol. They use that as a means of seeking the affirmation from the end of which they're praying, namely the saint or of Mary. Practically, that cannot be distinguished from worship. And that was one of the arguments the reformers make. You can say this is veneration over here, which defines what we can do with the saints and Mary, but latria is a Latin word for worship. That only, this only can be reverence to God alone. But they said, the reformers said, practically, you can't make that distinction. And in fact, you are, you are offending the second command even by putting these idols before people and saying, pray to this deity, or pray to this saint or to Mary. First of all, there is no biblical warrant for doing that in the first place, they pointed out. Secondly, you're making them idolaters when they do this. They are worshiping, they're serving, they're rendering service to something other than God when they do that to the saints, which is expressly forbidden in the second command. Now, that's one danger of having anything within the place of worship or at home that you would see as a medium for worship. Nothing can be that to us. No works of our hands can be for us a means of expressing, expressing worship to God. This, this afternoon, in fact, yesterday, I was driving home and I passed by St. Uh, Catherine's. And if you'll, maybe it's even still there. I don't know if you've driven by, if anybody has. My wife saw it. They have a table right in front of the foyer there. And it's full of these wooden carvings, these I, I would assume the saints, you know, images of the saints, images of Jesus. And they're just there. They're all there, and they can probably go buy them and 
and take them home and worship them. And we know that they have them on their chains and their necklaces and they're kissing them and they're showing them this, this reverence and this adoration, but they are, I believe, breaking this command. They are committing idolatry. The text says, you shall not bow to them or serve them. And that's exactly what Rome tells its people is permissible. Now, the sin of idolatry in Rome goes further in that they actually bow themselves before them. But it also includes the bowing themselves before images of Christ. Various icons or even the elements of the Lord's Supper after it's been blessed and transubstantiated, quote-unquote, changed into the true body and blood of the Lord. In fact, I can tell from experience, I was just there last week when I saw this happen, the priest, after this was done, bows before those elements as if Christ is there in the bread, in physical form. This is sin of idolatry. Well, does the question then stand, does artistry then have any place within the place of worship for a Christian church? And I think the other error falls off the other side of the question. To reject any and all artistry within a Christian place of worship and many various movements within Protestantism, evangelicalism since the Reformation has done this, They've called for the utter removal of any beautifying elements within a a place of worship, painting, sculptures, anything. And I think that's going off the other end. The purpose for that simplicity was to take away any element from worship which might take the mind off the preaching, prayer, or the ordinances themselves. There were good intentions for doing that. However, is stripping such artistry necessarily biblical itself? And I would answer, no, it's not. We have to answer these questions. Is beauty equal to evil or good? That's one thing that we have to think about. When the Reformation, one of the things that they promoted in the Reformation was the good, the true, and the beautiful. Now, all of those things, the good and the true, Christians would be very quick to say yes right but sometimes beauty we have a hard time with well one of the reasons is because Satan he appears like an angel of light right but he's also a liar but the way that he lies and I mentioned this recently is he doesn't just take the truth and say and give you an alternative uh, truth that absolutely contradicts it he gives you shades he he twists the truth he 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 bends it that's what he did in the garden that's what he's been doing from the beginning he's a liar but the way he tempts us is he he demonstrates or he promotes something that is a lie as if it's the truth beauty is no more evil than truth is or that goodness is Just because something is beautiful does not mean it's dangerous for us. And I think we have to watch ourselves because I think if we move away from those things, what is more beautiful than God himself? That's the way Jonathan Edwards used to talk about God and his holiness. God is most understood in his holiness to be 
beautiful, but he would say to a degree that a sinful person, a creature, can't even behold him. That's to the extent of his beauty. Another question we might ask ourselves is artistry a reflection of good or evil? Now, God, the creator in scripture, chose men that he gifted for the purpose of doing what he calls skilled work. And are we going to say then that that skilled work is reprehensible to us because we might have the proclivity of sinning when we see it? And I think that's where we have to be careful. We have to, our, our consciences need to be bound by Scripture, not by our own wisdom when it comes to these things. Are images or pictures or paintings or sculptures in themselves evil? And the answer to that, uniformly speaking, is no. They're not intrinsically evil. The question of whether God forbids by the second commandment the inclusion of any beautifying elements into a place of worship can be clearly answered by the principles, I believe, of just looking at the tabernacle and the temple. These are things that God ordained. Those beautifying elements he put into place. And he must have put them in a place, into place, knowing very well the sinfulness of men. And that man can take good things and twist them to conform them into evil things. And yet God chose to put them in those places. It, it, one of the arguments that's brought against that is that we're always prone to idolatry, and I believe that's true. But should we reject what God has promoted in those places because we are sinful? Now, that doesn't mean that I believe that every form should be acceptable within the place of worship for a Christian. I don't want us to start putting idols of various apostles or any of these things in our church. God forbid that we do that. There's no place for that in here, biblically speaking. Now, in the Reformation, after the consciences of people were set free from Rome, one of the results was that the reformers went through and destroyed most of the, the, even the beautifying elements of the churches. And the question that comes up, was that right then? Would that be right now? And I think their, their take on it was, we have come out of this bondage. People's consciences are not so far removed that they can't go into a cathedral, a beautiful place of worship, and not be in their minds subjected to that sin still. That was a decision based off wisdom, not necessarily a conviction that beautifying things were evil in themselves. Now, I, I say all that to come to these points, and I said this last week when we were finishing. What about Christ and the Holy Spirit? What do we do with them? If we're so prone to idolatry, as I believe we are, as many of us would attest to, what do we do with images of Christ? Last week I argued that in 1 Corinthians 12, 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a clear distinction between idolatry and Christianity. Verse 2, he said, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. There's something going on there with, 
with that when he says mute idols. Listen the way he, he goes on speaking. However you were led, this is what you used to be as pagans. Therefore, in verse 3, I want you to understand that no one's, now he says speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I think he's making a, a contrast here between what idolatry is in its essence, serving a mute idol, not the true reality, and those who serve Christ, who give a sound profession of faith in one who is unseen. He's unseen here. That's the context here that he's speaking of in contrast to the mute idols. And yet we speak confession that Jesus is Lord because of the Holy Spirit working in us. Now, I say that to say that's true Christianity right there. But if we come to that and we ask this question as we're considering idols and what can be made and what cannot be made, the question arises in my head, are we ever permitted to then make visual replicas of Christ? Now, there are, amongst evangelicals that I found, historically split right down the middle. Not Rome and Christians, but evangelical Christians that are split on this. Some arguments I'm going to give you, first arguments against this, and then I'm going to give you some arguments for it. First of all, People would say we shouldn't do this because we don't know what he looked like. We can't give an actual true representation of him. Therefore, it wouldn't be true. This argument is since Jesus is equal with God, we should then apply the command to not make any image of him, especially since we cannot represent him rightly, which is part of the reason we're not to make or attempt to make any, any images of God. Because how can we represent God by anything made? Well, well, we can't. Secondly, they say it's impossible to keep everyone from worshiping Jesus through that image. Somebody looks at a, as, at a, art, a piece of art that has Jesus on it or a sculpture or something that might depict Jesus, and they would say that the temptation is too great that through that image, that medium, you would worship, you would attempt to worship Christ, which then would be sin. So that argument takes the lesser evil approach. They'd argue that since people are tempted to do it, we better not have them at all anyway, at all. Now this group would assert that even visual de depictions of Christ in a Sunday school program are forbidden. Any picture, any teaching uh, equipment would be forbidden. They'd argue that it, what is to be known of Christ is to be known through the scriptures alone. Nothing else should be enjoined to the knowledge of him. And this is, I, I think, their strongest argument right here. A heart will not be changed because of a physical image of Jesus, but because they believe the invisible message of him. It's the gospel which, which saves. We don't worship God prop or Christ properly through an image, neither will anybody be rightly brought to faith through him through an image. Now, that's the against side. I'm going to go to Martin Luther for the first argument why we should be allowed to. Here's what he said. Who is so stone blind, as only Martin Luther would write, 
Who is so stone blind as not to see that if sacred events may be described in words without sin, and to the profit of the hearers, they may with the same propriety for the benefit of the uneducated, meaning as a teaching tool, be portrayed or sculptured, not only at home and in our houses, but in the churches. In another place, he says, this is Martin Luther, when one reads of the passion of Christ, whether he will or not, an image of the man suspended on the cross is formed in his mind just as certainly as his face is reflected when he looks into the water. Now, I don't know if that's true. But listen to this. There is no sin, he says, in having such an image in the mind. Why then should it be sinful to have it before our eyes? That's Martin Luther. Also, they say, since Christ has a human nature, something that is analogous to us, not something that's unknown to us, as the nature of God is, we cannot describe him in anything made. The deity cannot be described in anything made. Yet Christ has a human nature, they say. To absolutely reject images made in his likeness, that is Christ's likeness, is to reject God's good purpose in being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and took on our frame. They'd go so far to say is, if you say that we cannot make a replica of Jesus, you may be denying or at least repudiating to a degree his human nature. He was truly man, they would say. Being truly man, there is a way that we can think about him that is true as being a man. Now, the weight of that argument, I think, is especially felt when we remember that God himself, in the person of our son, took our nature willingly. He didn't do this tied up or restrained by sinful men that want a way to worship God through an idol. God did this for us. Colossians 1.15, Christ is said to be the image of the invisible God. Meaning, Christ shows forth to us God in the way that God ordained that God be known to us most perfectly. And yet, if I think we're balanced, somebody might come back from the other side and say, and yet there's nothing really analogous to the person, to the whole person of Christ. For Christ is the God-man. When we look even on out, outwardly on Christ and his human nature, we don't look on the full nature of Christ because he cannot, the divine nature cannot be contained within the human nature. Yet he is divine and he is human. Truly God and truly man. You see, like, as you're sitting out there, I'm sure I, I don't want to speak for all of you, I'm back in there this week going, what is it? What is it? What is it? Trying to be biblical about this. And I hope that you see my intention in this. These are not just things because we're talking about true worship. We're talking about worship, how we rightly worship God. And so I'll give you my conviction concerning Christ. 
I do not believe that an image seeking to resemble the Christ of Scripture is with breaking the second command. I do not believe it is breaking the second command to try to render an image of Christ. However, any such image cannot be made into an Im- medium or used as a medium for worship, meaning to worship Christ through it. Anything that we might say depicts Jesus Christ cannot be used to worship him through. To worship Christ through an image, no question, is sin. It's idolatry. Are they necessary for instruction? Do we have to make them for instruction? No. There is nothing that says we have to, and I don't believe there's, within this command, the means for us to refuse anybody who might try to depict Christ visually. Should images of Christ be forbidden as a permanent structure within the house of worship or the sanctuary of the church? And I would lean on that, and yes. I would lean, I don't want a a permanent image up here of Jesus above me when I preach. Because if I were down there, and I looked up at that image, how do you distinguish between that image and the worship you want to give Christ in truth? I think the temptation on that end crosses the line. But do I think that they're forbidden as a whole? And I would say no on that. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Now, as I say this, I think on this we need to practice Christian charity. I really do believe that we need to practice Christian charity. As long as somebody is saying it should not be used to worship Christ through, we should say we're brothers there. Idolatry has not been committed. And on the other end, if somebody says no image should be made at all depicting Christ, they're doing that for the sake, biblical conviction as a believer. And I say we're brothers there. We shouldn't destroy our brother in that case. Now, what about the Holy Spirit? There are various ways that the Holy Spirit is personified, if you would. Or there are physical ways that the Holy Spirit is, is made to, to be understood in the mind. In Acts chapter 2, 3, he's spoken of as appearing as if it were his presence were in accordance with the tongues of fire. And then also the wind is spoken of as being analogous to the work of the Spirit in John chapter 3, verse 8. But maybe most importantly, the way that the Spirit is most often represented is in the form of a dove. Now, I'm going to read a few texts from the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, and I want you to follow along. You don't have to look through them. We'll we'll go quickly. Matthew 3.16, And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And listen to, Jesus saw, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Very similar in Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, that is Jesus, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
These verses both speak of Jesus seeing the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now that language is very precise and it's very important. These do not say that the Holy Spirit descended actually as a dove, but like a dove. It's like manner or as a dove would descend. Thus, they are analogously speaking of a movement, a way that the Holy Spirit is progressing. And this isn't different from the way that the scriptures often speak of God himself. We make the distinction when, God's, when the scriptures speak about God, the hand of God. We, we call that anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have a hand. The deity does not have a hand like you and I. It's another thing that Rome does in the Sistine Chap- Chapel, for instance. They have a picture of this old man. And he's reaching out his finger to touch Adam, the creation. That's supposed to be God. That's idolatry. And they've got it in several places around the the chapel. chapel. The, The artistry is amazing, but it's idolatry. They're making an image of God. Is that what's going on here? Now, if all we had was Mark and, and Matthew, then, then I think the question is easy. Like a dove means it's depicting a movement like uh, a dove, that the Holy Spirit came down and rested on Christ. But when we go to Luke's record, there's a little bit different language there. Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Now, that's the difference, especially here. Like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is a little different. However, notice that the additional in bodily form doesn't do anything, in fact, to what is likened to the dove. It is the movement of Christ that, or the Holy Spirit that is still seen here. The bodily form that descended was like a dove. It wasn't a dove. It's not like the Holy Spirit became a dove and descended to Christ. However, Luke does seem to imply a visible image, a visible representation that he says was like a dove. But I think ultimately the text here does not teach that the Holy Spirit can be understood at any time as being a physical dove. Neither does John 3 teach that he can be understood as wind, and neither does Acts 2 speak that he can be understood as fire. Those are ways of speaking of the Holy Spirit as he moves or as he works. They give us a clear understanding of his actions, his activity. Now, since the Holy Spirit never had an integral relationship, never became a dove, so to speak, in God's revelation of him, it's a fleeting symbol. And therefore, I believe it should not be for us to draw a picture of the dove and say, this represents the Holy Spirit. It represents his working. That's what was happening there. 
Jesus Christ is truly a man. And that's why I believe we can represent him as a man. The Holy Spirit was never actually a dove. And I mean, I see that everywhere. I see that on a lot of good materials that I read. The Holy Spirit is a dove, you know, descending. And I think it's dangerous if we go that far. Is the Holy Spirit a dove? No, he's not a dove. Is Christ a man? Yes, he is truly man. He is the God-man, but he is truly man. Final word here. Make it quite brief. Regardless of where you fall out on these questions, one thing is absolutely clear. We can never substitute the true worship of God for that of any supposed representation of him. Anything that he has not revealed himself to be, we have no right to form and to conceive that that's how we worship him through. But we're so prone to go there. I I have to admit, when I was in that Roman Catholic service, there was something about the visual that, that spoke to me. And I say that as honestly as I can to you, because there are temptations in us to be drawn to the visual representations of the things that we long to see. I long to see Christ. I hope you do too. I long to see him face to face like the song says, but we will not get that when we look at a visible replica of him. We will never get that, this side of eternity. And we can never assume that we can substitute true worship, faith, with an idol, with a replica, with anything, even if it's valid. We can never substitute true worship through that medium. Nothing made shall be worshipped and nothing shall be made in order to worship him. Worship it. And the second command also forbids creating anything that represents the one true God and to worship him through it. John 4, 23, 24. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And truth.